another edition of the stunt show this is mark zamek here on the nachum siegel network we have what will hopefully be a very interesting show this uh this afternoon this morning whenever you're listening to it at any time of the day and um as i always say when i open these show this is could either be radio gold or crash and burn we will let the uh, listeners decide my guest today is a gentleman who um I would say I know for, I guess, all of my life, officially or unofficially, and certainly affiliations with my family for even longer than that. His name is Arthur Aaron, affectionately known to many of his friends and colleagues and cousins as Usher, in case you are, uh, if the name sounds familiar. And as, as a way of, intro, uh, as a way of introduction, I think that, uh, Arthur has, um, many of the, um, initials 
the, uh, associated with him that uh, we think of in the Jewish community. He is an FFB who went to RJJ, NYU, and uh, uh, among many others that we can uh, can we can think of. I spend time with Arthur um, in his uh, in one of his entrepreneur, entrepreneurial ventures a number of years ago, and we certainly became um, close during that time and have stayed in touch ever since. So, welcome to the stunt show, Arthur Aaron. Thank you uh, uh, for having me. It is uh, it is my pleasure. So let's just rewind for a little while because I think that uh, you um, your upbringing in this country is typical of many people of your age, which we won't go into necessarily the details, but I guess people will figure it out as we set the stage. Um, you born in America? Yes, sir. Um, grew up in born in the Bronx. Born in the Bronx. Grew up in the Bronx. Went to RJJ. Yes. So now, when you start, how old were you when you started in RJJ? I was ten. On the I lower started side, in the fifth grade. On the lower side. Yes. And, and before that, you, I went to four different yeshivas. And how'd you get to how'd you get to RJJ? Because for me, it blows me away. I think it was one of the last schools that I could uh, probably go to because you know yeah. I went to Salanter and I went to Chaim Ozer and I went to the Lubavitch yeshiva, uh, and uh, you know we were working our way through. Uh, as I said the other day to somebody, I think that in today's world I would be somebody who they'd call ADD. So I had my troubles uh, in in the early schooling, and because uh, he didn't fit, fit into the mold. Well, you know, I was stimulated by everything, and um, it just didn't work until I I went to RJJ and it started to work there. And why did it start to work at RJJ? I don't know. Maybe it was the hour each way riding on the subway. <laughs> and your parents let you go on the subway. It was no problem back yeah, then. Yeah, it was the old days, uh, Mark. You know, it was. Uh, we we rode the subways. We had a, a chevra. We used to play Johnny on the Pony on the subway. It was really nice. Um, after RJJ, you went to. I went to yeshiva. So you went uh, RJJ high, through high school. I went to four four years in the grade school and then four years in the high school. And when did you start again? For for uh, I'm sticking information that I obviously know from your uh, life. When did when did basketball become a focus? I discovered basketball when I was 10 years old. Uh, I just recently wrote something about it. Uh, I was uh, actually I was nine years old, and my parents used to take me to a, a park um, on Shabbos in the Bronx to play knock hockey. I would play knock hockey. And one day, the people who ran the park set the knock hockey game up near the basketball courts. And I was nine years old. And I watched a a group of young men. They were playing full-court basketball, uh, and they were having a great time. And that uh, somehow just intrigued me. And when they took a break between games, I asked if I could borrow their ball. And I was nine years old. And I couldn't get it up to the basket. I tried to shoot it a few times, and I couldn't even get it up to the basket. So you didn't go to six feet at that age? No, no, no. I was small. I was small, and I was weak. Um, So uh, it became very challenging. Uh, So I nudged my parents, and they got me a basketball. And uh, But there were no kids to play with, really. 
In fact, at that time, uh, I think I was in a half year at uh, the public school. But what I did was I played with this basketball, which wasn't really a good basketball. It was like a bladder. You know, in the old days, mm-hmm. it was like a bladder filled with air. Uh, but I played in the rain and the sleet and the snow and the cold and the heat. And, um, and I slowly got to be able to get the ball up to the basket. And then I went to RJJ. Um, and, uh, you know, I grew a little bit, uh, and, uh, but I got a little stronger. And from the uh, fifth grade to the eighth grade, we played amongst ourselves. Mostly we played punch ball. We mm-hmm. didn't really play basketball, but I, you know, for me it was basketball, although I did participate in the punch ball. But we started to slowly play basketball, and then because well, basketball you needed a basketball and essentially a hoop. Punch ball you, you just needed the ball and, and a, a couple a place cars. to play. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a street or whatever, wherever you play. Couple manholes. Sure. Um, so uh, uh, I, uh, in the eighth grade, I began to play with the high school kids because they had a, a basketball team. The high school basketball. Was there a yeshiva team. league the same way there is there now? There was a yeshiva league, right? And the varsity played the yeshiva league, and there was also the beginnings of a JV. And what 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 schools? Just to set it, so you had RJJ, MTA, BTA, right? RJJ, Flatbush. MTA, BTA, Flatbush, Ramaz, Highlight came on. Uh, I don't know about eight teams, seven or eight teams. Um, small league. We played twelve games, but. What happened to me was that I had a very uh, good thing happen uh, when I when I got to high school. Um, I tried out for the varsity and I didn't make it. Um, so as a freshman, you tried out for the varsity. I tried out for the varsity and I didn't make it. And I played on the JV and I had a fantastic coach on the JV. His name is Mel Isaacs. A lot of your listeners will probably mm-hmm. know him. Uh, and Mel, uh, stressed fundamentals and he was, you know, he was very firm, uh, but he was fair and he was knowledgeable and he taught us how to play the game and he was a terrific motivator and he really motivated me. So I played on the JV in my freshman and sophomore years and then between my Sophomore year and my junior year, I grew five inches. And, <laughs> you know, for basketball player, that's a sure. good thing. Uh, for most guys, that's a good thing. Right, right. right. Uh, and uh, I got to be one of the better players in, in, the, in the school. And then by the end of my junior year, I was probably the best player in the school. And uh, uh, in my senior year, uh, I led the league in scoring uh, in our junior year, we won the championship. In our senior year, we came in second. Um, and um, are you interested in my basketball career? I, well, you know, it, it's funny because I, I'm interested in the basketball career for a number of reasons. But um, and I want to continue on that thought. But I, I, I want to hone in on something that you said about the coach um, that he was able to motivate you. Um, and we don't have to get into all the details because I think we can cover it later. But um, I guess for two reasons. Number one is I know that you are also you also have been a coach yourself, and I know you have pretty strong opinions about what happened in um, in Rutgers, and um, uh, and I'm wondering how you motivate teenagers to do anything, and and how you straddle the line between being being forceful and firm, 
and being abusive and not crossing over that that divide. Well, so maybe because I, I know players who you've coached, and I don't. They they all have extraordinarily positive, you know, or most of them, I guess, thank you know, you. Yes. Um, positive uh, experiences from it. So the question is, how do you? Seeing what it's like, what it looks like to cross the line, which we've all seen on, on YouTube and on television, what is that? Well, first of all, let, just so if you're interested, then let me because I go ahead, I, I, please. Uh, I'll continue. So, uh, uh, and then um, so we were playing uh, in the Yeshiva League, and um, in one of the games we played against uh, Ramaz, and we played, I think. Pro- prior to a Yeshiva University game and the legendary Yeshiva University coach Red Saracek was there and I scored 35 points or 33 I don't mm. remember really and of course uh, you remember <laughs> no I don't really I think I think 33 34 something like that um and so I finished my senior year in a in a in a, in a uh uh a week after the season was over I got an invitation to go to the Yeshiva University spring practices that were held at Central Needle Trades High School, where a lot of the games were played. Mm-hmm. Yeshiva played there as well. And Red Saracek held this clinic or spring practices, whatever they were called. And of course, I accepted. Um, one of the reasons I accepted was that I I couldn't go anywhere else but Yeshiva. And if you want to hear a really yeah, interesting no, well, story, well, I'll good. tell you a really Please, interesting yeah, story. So so while I was playing all this basketball, and I was playing a lot of basketball, I would come home from RJJ at night at about 7, get home at 7, eat quickly, and then I would go to a place called PS70, which was a school, public school, which was opened in the evenings for evening programs for kids so that they would be able to congregate in wholesome atmospheres. And this was going on all over the city, and it was uh, the old days. Right. Now you have gangs and drugs. And but they still, have those, those. they still have those programs for the same I reason. I don't know whether yeah, yeah, they sure. have them in the city or not. Yeah. They do. Okay, well, great. So I went to uh, this PS70, and the guy who was in charge was a young man who had played at Duke University. He was a third-team All-American. He was a terrific guy. And, he, and Duke was then what Duke is now. And Duke was then what it is now. Wow. And uh, one day he said to me, you know, kid, I think you could play at Duke. So I looked at him as if he were right, I'm crazy. Modest, right. And I said, you really think so? He said, yeah, yeah. He said, you need to get stronger and you need to get conditioned to the way they play. And that, what he meant by that was in that kind of competition – you can knock down constantly. Right. They knock you down, knock you down, and you have to be able to get up. If you can get up, you can play. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least physically, you right. can play. So he said, you know, they'll teach you that. You just have to keep shooting and scoring the way that you, I know you can. After you've gotten knocked down. Yeah, after you've, right, exactly. So I just let it go. About two weeks or three weeks after that, he approached me with a, another man, and the man said to me, uh, I'm... His name was Bobby, the guy from Duke. I think it was Bobby. And he said, um, he introduced me, Bobby introduced me to this guy, and this guy said, I'm from Syracuse University, right. and uh, I've been watching you play. And, and by the way, in, in, in RJJ, there wasn't a lot of college recruitment where 
you would even know what that this is going on. It was probably a different time there was then. None. There was none. Right. And, was but, none. but even among your friends in the Bronx when you play basketball, this wasn't even, this is completely foreign to you. These guys are just coming out of the blue. Right. This is, this is something that came out of the blue, out of the blue. And, uh, so the, the, the guy that Bobby introduced me to said, I'm from Syracuse University. Uh, I've been watching you play. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, Bobby talked to you about Duke. Uh, I'm from Syracuse. I'd like for you to come there next weekend. You'll meet the coach. You'll meet some of the players. Uh, you'll see how beautiful our school is. And maybe you'll decide to come to our school because I think you can play there. And uh, we will pay for your college education. And again, you had no clue this is even... No. I didn't have any clue at all. Uh, so I rushed home and... It was a Thursday night, and my mother was in the kitchen preparing for Shabbos, and my father was at the table, and I sat down, and I said to my father, you know, I just met a guy from Syracuse University. He wants me to come there next weekend. He thinks that I can get a scholarship. He wants me to meet the coach. He wants me to meet the players, uh, and, you know, I'd like to go. So my father said to me, that's really nice. Yeah, but he probably thinks you're coming up from the planet Mars in this conversation. Well, he didn't think so because he knew that I was really, you know... Your parents I, weren't born in this country? No, they, they were. weren't born in this country, but, you know, I had cousins and uncles, and my uncles were, some of them were had been here at a very young age, and they knew about basketball, okay. and they were telling him, you know, Usher can really right. do this. And he said, so he said to me, that's very nice. He said, but tell me, do they play there on Shabbos? Now... That should have been my first thought when they, right. this, this talk of Duke or Syracuse, but it's for some reason it didn't. So I thought for a second, took about a second, and I said, yeah, I guess they do. He said to me, well, you could go there, but don't come back here. You could go to Syracuse, right. but don't come back here. So my big time college basketball career was over. And so how do you, um, how do you, re- I mean, I, I, I know a number of people are faced with that choice to, you know, career versus, you know, c- continuing this lifestyle. Well, it, it was a no-brainer. I mean, for me, you know, I love my parents, and I, I wasn't going to give up Shabbos to play basketball. Uh, the truth is I would have liked to have gone to NYU and played basketball because they had one of the top teams in the country, and I used to scrimmage with them. Mm-hmm. And then I knew then but, yeah, they still have the same issue that there. I could hold my own, though, right. that I could hold my own. But I still had the same issue, right. so I didn't, I didn't... So it was yeshiva. Right. It was yeshiva... Nowhere else, nowhere else in America could I play college basketball right. but at Yeshiva. So the invitation came this two weeks after my... Although kids are finding today, you know, obviously you know the stories where a number of well, kids... Well, the Lieberman kid in, in Northwestern has some heter from some you know, rabbi. We, you know we met his father. Yeah, we met his father right. in, in Houston, right? Yeah. His father was big. He's even bigger. Right. His father's about 6'6". Six, six, this kid is about 6'6". And, and the irony was when we met him, his father had just come back from Israel from this kid's bar mitzvah. Is that right? Because right, timing-wise, he's going into college so was it now. So five years ago? Though? Yeah, five wow. or six years. Wow. So... Well, probably just five and a half years ago, yeah. 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 So it was yeshiva or nothing, so the invitation came, and I thought to myself, wow, I got this invitation. Let me go to the right. practices. So I began to go to the practices, and... Um, the, the assistant coaches helped me get through the more complicated drills. I mean, this was a, on a whole new level. Mm-hmm. Because Saracek was on a different level. Now, Saracek, just from a historical perspective, his, did he have other coaching jobs before or during yes. YU? He had a... Because he's like a famous, everybody right, considers right. him the Rav of, 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 of right. college Lahavdu, coaching. Yeah. Right. yeah, okay. The, co- the, the, 
the reason that Saracek was so vaunted was because he had recently won four championships in a row in a in a league that was a precursor to the NBA. Mm-hmm. And some of the guys in that league actually got to play in the NBA when the NBA was formed, I think, in 1948. So Saracek came with this tremendous reputation. So I'm here I am, I'm an 18-year-old senior in high school, and these are his forthcoming players for the next coming season. Some of them are juniors, some of them are seniors. And, you know, after about two practices, I'm there, you right. know, and I'm holding my own with these guys. So I knew I could play at Yeshiva, and everything was nice. What position were you playing? I was kind of like a guard at that time, a shooting guard. I'm a shooter. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a shooter and a scorer. So, so Both on the court and off the court. What's that? A You're shooter. A shooter. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, you'll have to explain that right. to the audience. Um, so, and Sarajek sat me down and he said, you know, tell your parents, we'll take care of the tuition, which is a whole other story. Yeah. You know, which they did. I, I, I grant them that. They did that. Um, and uh, I enrolled, you know, I enrolled in Yeshiva. And what happened then was just amazing. I mean, amazing. You asked me about Rutgers, right? Mm-hmm. The coach at Rutgers, right? Saracek makes the coach at Rutgers look like Cinderella. That's 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 how abusive Saracek was. He cursed his players. He spit at them. He threw chairs and lit cigarettes at, at us. He, although he never did that to me, he just humiliated me in public mm-hmm. in front of the student body and it was interesting that the students would come to the games and sometimes a lot considering you know we had 500 people in yeshiva and three or four hundred of them would show up to a game and there was no there was no gym back in the day there was no gym and they would come to power memorial where we where we practiced and um whenever he would get ready to do one of his tirades everybody would go you know (laughs) so that they could hear what sarachek did um it was humiliating to me uh, and um, I never, I don't think, realized my full potential because I always had one eye on him and one eye on the game because, you know, I was always thinking to myself, what insanity is going to come up with next? Was this on and off the court, his personality? Because there were stories about him. I don't know, I heard one story that, the, you know, on the train with some kids eating an orange. She goes, you're eating an orange? You're wearing a yarmulke? You know, like he, like, like there are stories of him where he was was not that way i think that if i want to be charitable his ego was such that if the basketball players didn't do it his way uh and they were doing poorly he just couldn't handle it and he allowed his ego to overtake his entire personality he was impossible i mean the bottom line is he was impossible. So he was like a parent who felt that everything the kid did wrong was a reflection on him. Exactly. And, and, and he should be able to get That's you. That's what I think, Mark. I'm not a psychologist. Right. I don't know. All I know is that we never had the kind of record that we should have had. Yeshiva under him had had a poor record, a uh, poor win, win-loss record. And I feel that uh, he held us back. Rather than motivating us and and giving us encouragement and coaching us the way we needed to be coached, he held us back. And I'll give you a, a for instance, which okay. I think I've told you in the past. They once asked Red 
Auerbach, who is uh-huh. one considered one of the Boston greatest coach, mm-hmm. coaches who ever lived. The Boston Celtics won ten championships. They asked him why was he so successful. So he said that the reason he was so successful is he didn't treat all his players the same way. So the interviewer asked Darko. right. So he said the interviewer asked him, Well, why is that the case, Red? Why he said, Oh, how is that the case? He said, Well, I'll give you for instance. Tommy Heinsohn, who was a great, great mm-hmm. player for the Celtics, he said every once in a while I have to kick him in the fanny. He didn't mean literally, right. he meant figuratively. And then he had another guy, a very sensitive guy named Willie Knowles. Willie Knowles he said, if I do the same thing to Willie Knowles, he folds his tent and he goes home. Mm-hmm. So you can't treat everybody the same way. And I think that's what I tried to do when I coached. But it's, it's just to come back to, to uh, you know, a lot of the, look, many of our, our listeners know, as we both do, about the scandals coming out of things that happened in YU. It was after your time, but certainly, you know, when I was there 30 years ago, whatever. And, and, and while I, I don't, I don't think any of this kind of behavior is excusable, I'm not trying to, to, to minimize it in any way, I do think that there has to be some sense of it was a different time then. And while, again, you said Lahavda when I said he was the rub of the coaches, the, the Rabbeim and YU at that time, who probably didn't know who Red Sarachek was, but the Rabbeim and YU at that time also, many of them were known for their temper, for their humiliating, Students abusive abusive behavior, behavior in in the classroom, and I get a abusive in a different certainly ways that aren't acceptable today among rabbeim. You know, I think that certainly the style I've heard, I think um, uh, David Pelkowitz talk about that were were much more of the the love than the fear the aspect of of teaching. Um, but 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 you know, uh, look, I just hear stories, and I want to mention rabbeim who were there at the time, but 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 many of them were known for their um their 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 temper their quick to anger their frustration with the american boys or whatever because at that time they were still all, all european rebbies pretty much i mean can you contextualize sarajek's behavior that it, it was it it wasn't in line it was it sounds to me that it was in line with that okay uh you know i've given that a lot of thought the first thing i want to say is that 11 years prior to me being a bar mitzvah boy they were gassing my, right. my my relatives. So you know the rabbeim came, for, you know, right. you know that you were sitting in America in a beautiful yeshiva. They thought, and you were free pretty much to do whatever you wanted to do, and you wouldn't learn Torah. Maybe that was their situation. But let's go back to Sarachek. Yeshiva had four teams: a tennis team, a wrestling team, a fencing team, and the basketball team. Mm-hmm. The tennis team was coached by Eli Epstein, who was a very nice man and a professional tennis player. The wrestling team was coached by Henry Wittenberg, who was an Olympic gold mm-hmm. medal winner and a very nice man. Tauber. Tauber coached the fencing team, and he was the sweetest, nicest right. man. And Sarachek was a Meshuganer. <laughs> so you tell right. me, you right. know, why those three guys treated their students with respect their 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 proteges or whatever you want to call them with respect and uh, and of course firmness because you have to if you're trying to teach something right. particularly in a team sport it's hard you got to p- get people a mess i don't minimize the job but if you're a miserable human being you're a miserable human being mm-hmm. and you take it out on 
everybody that you can. And, you know, that's not to say that Red didn't do nice things. I'm sure he did some nice things. And, you know. But but your memories, it seems to me, your memories and experience in playing basketball in YU, despite the physical um, difficulties that you may have now that you harken back to that, are generally, po- I mean, your friends are your friends for life. Well, yes, of course. I just for instance, but let me tell you, this is an inter- you brought it up. Kenny Jacobson is a really good friend sure. of mine. Kenny Jacobson said to me when the Rutgers thing came out, he thought about Saracek first, mm-hmm. and then he thought about me. So when I said to him, "Why did you think about me?" he said, "Because you were the number one abusee." And you said you said before you didn't view it that way. I didn't view it physically. He never abused right. me physically. But to Kenny, who was clever enough to let it go in one ear and out the other, right. and who never really, I don't believe, ever really let on that he loved it so much that he would take almost anything. Right. Because, you know, Sarajek had to persuade Kenny to come play because Kenny's father didn't want him to play. He wanted him to spend his time studying. Learning, right. And Kenny was terrific. He was a great player. And Saracek persuaded Kenny to come play. But he knew that, number one, and Kenny's parents also never came for that mm-hmm. reason. My father and mother, my mother came to one game. Wow. And she said, I'll never come again as long as that guy's the coach. And my father came to a few more games. And Kenny's parents felt the same way about it. But Kenny either had the maturity or the or Saracek was afraid because he knew that Kenny would p- pick up and walk. Right. There was never any question with me. I just loved it too much, and I had no choice. And after college, you, you were okay with not playing? I played on kind of semi-pro kind of teams, and mm-hmm. I had a great time, and I played the best I ever played right. when I was out of that. And I don't say that I didn't learn a lot from Saracek. I learned a lot from Saracek. Both Lestrock and the Ganai. Right, right. I learned a lot of basketball. You cannot take away what he was as a original thinker, an original thinker in basketball. You know, they this this highly acclaimed uh, uh, triangle offense mm-hmm. that uh, Phil Jackson has won all these championships with, which he learned from his coach, Holzman, who learned, learned it from Red, right. probably learned it from Red. Right. So the two Reds. But, uh, uh, you know, it hurts. It, it just, you know, I'm, I'm 70 years old. I'm not, right. you know, I'm 70 years old. It's 50 years ago. I still think about it. Wow. Um, and and just to to close the loop, and you feel also the the ancientness of the equipment that you had. Like it, you want you don't think that you would have the physical t- challenges you have now if you had real good sneakers, right? From playing on oh, the right. cement and the right. floor. Right. And well, the- we look. We played. As I said, I played in the cold, in the rain, in the snow. I remember playing in ten degree cold in RJJ. Right. And we played with the best that we had, if we could have a pair nothing, but a it was, Converse sneakers. Right, exactly. That was a big deal. Right. And we played with Keds, and we, and I also played a lot at Frisch, and Frisch had a floor that was. You pl- wait, Frisch is not a, a, around that long. No, I played on Afterwards. Sundays and oh, uh, as an adult, and Frisch had a court that was tiles on cement, very thin tiles on <laughs> yeah. cement, which they changed after we won the right. championship. Uh, they they put in a wood floor because I told Robert and they Meyer, just redid it this week, a couple weeks ago they did it. They redo you can the watch floor. on YouTube. There's a video of them redoing that floor. 
Right. They they do it every right. year or two. They redo the floor. But I I persuaded Rabbi Meyer to put in. I said because these kids are going to have a lot of problems. Right. Which I have. Right. I've had the new hips and et cetera. And now I need a. This week I'm getting an, epi, an epidural for my low back. So you can't you can't you know you can't minimize what happened to us as athletes from the particularly the shoes we wore and the surfaces on which we played. So let's switch gears a little bit. So you already, you know, the, the cat of the your age is out of the bag. And so you were you graduated Yeshiva University in, if I could do the math, 63? 64. 64, a year behind my, my father yes. and my Uncle Howie's class. I was... Your Uncle Howie and I were good friends in... In RJJ as well, correct. Yes, we Even, and, and you have similar height, but he never played basketball. Right. Um, so graduating in... So we, you know, people look back at that time, especially now, and um, I think especially from a religious perspective, they're looking at it as sort of the, the height of YU. It's certainly as it relates to, of course, it's now the 20th anniversary of his death. Maybe the, 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 the phoenix of the, of the Rub's influence, of Salvatrix's influence in YU. That was when, you know, it was before his wife had passed away when he was really, but he had already gained a level of, of stature and respect. You know, I sort of, you know, at that, that, you know, but he was still completely physically able to do what he is famous for doing. His heyday. His heyday, exactly. A good word. Um, and, um, and everybody views it sort of in a way of being the, the quintessential, the quintessential period. But I, I would have to guess that there were, you know, bad things that happened then too, or not bad things, you know, but we all view it as, you know, being a, uh, a perfect place. What was a perfect Why you? I mean, or more perfect perhaps than it is now with fewer, fewer conflicts than now. I don't know if that's, I mean, but that whole, I, I guess the, the religious community then, maybe because it was so close to the post Holocaust, felt they had to be more unified than I think the religious community views that they have to be today. It sounds to me like you're talking in code. I don't know if I'm talking. Well, I want to get. Are it. you saying? Are you saying? Let me let me see if, I'm, if I if I can understand you. Are you saying that the religious community at that time would not have exposed the abuses that are going on? No, I'm not in, even talking in, about abuses. No, no, no. I'm not even talking about abuses. I don't think that's the issue. Meaning that it, I, I, I see today much more of a split in the religious community. In the denominations and the subdivisions of the religious community, we were just talking to um, the guidance director, guidance, the Israel guidance counselor for Mayanot, who Leora interviewed um, a little while ago, and she was. And we were talking about choosing schools in Israel, and after the interview, we were talking about the such slight differences in hashkafa for each of the schools and how you would get a completely different student based on those slight differences. It seems to me that in the 60s, when the Rav, when it was, you know, the Rav, Rav Moshe and, you know, maybe, Jireda, maybe. yeah, uh, that, 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 that was it. And, and it's interesting we say those three people because those three people, the, the, the organizations or the, the place that those three people have had in the community during the 60s are organizations that are just as strong today as they were but don't have a leader. 
meaning that don't have the leader the same way. No matter what you say about any of the Rosh Yeshiva today, you know, either officially in terms of the embodiment with Rabbi Lamb or Rav Schechter or Rav Willig or and a very talented, you know, Russia Yeshiva, nobody would put them in the category of the Rav. No matter what Lubavitch is still doing today, the Rebbe's loss is felt. No matter how many talented postgim come out today, Ramosha's, so it seems to me that at that time there was more unity around a fewer people than today where it's all over the place. Well, what is that? What about the concept of the the Doros become weaker? There is that concept that we sure. have, and and so perhaps that's what it is. Um, I also think that I agree with you, uh, but I think that it has a lot to do with the communications that we have in today's world, and that whoever aspires to be uh, considered a Superstar. Right. Has many uh, outlets, particularly with the advent of the Internet, mm-hmm. to further that concept. Right, but that becomes a double-edged sword, too, as we've seen recently. Right, right. Where everything that the they say... Right. right. everything that they say is completely scrutinized and, and distributed immediately. And also, you also have to think that the attainment of people like the Rav or... Reb Moshe or the Lubavitcher Rebbe in particular uh, fighting against odds that just are not with us today, those kind of odds. Right, so in, in other words, we're too fat and happy that we can fight amongst each other because no one's beating us up. Well, uh, you said it, okay. Uh, we, we, right. We, we, there's no enemy to rally against. Right. So we feed on each other. And, and that, that is, uh, you know, the weakness of the religion, I think. People say it's the strength. I mean, I was telling my daughter in California, we went to Ariela's for, for Pesach, and, you know, the women suffer who have to do all this preparation. I don't mm-hmm. care how many prepared foods that they can buy, and they work. Just the right. conversion of their homes. And then they are exhausted, and they have to do two sadarim. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we can't get our troops together right. and say we know down to the millisecond what the. What, I think that'll know. change, by the way, over time. Well, I, I hope, I hope, I hope it does. And by the way, the whole Yom Tov thing is a, a different argument. I, I, my my favorite answer that I've heard recently is that we lack a certain level of kedusha in America, and that's why we need two days of Yom Tov. That's true too, and, and but maybe and, you don't need a full second seder. Yeah, and also it's a punishment for being in America. Okay, fair enough. That, yeah, that, I know you you're know, a big advocate of Aliyah. One of right, your children. Yeah, does that's why I'm Israel. sitting here talking to right. you in Teaneck, New Jersey, because right. I'm a big advocate of Aliyah. But you, you don't want me to get right. in and rant about that here. So, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, we need to get our act together. We need, we need, we need to have respect for each other. Uh, we need not to hear that uh, you know there's war going on in Brooklyn uh, between these Hasidim and those mm-hmm. Hasidim. It's pathetic. Uh, you know that's not what it's about. But if you know Jewish history, you go all the way back to right. uh, you know David united the country for how long? <laughs> right. Well, even, right. And then, well, even before that, I had commented recently. Um, uh, between the, the, the back, the back office, uh, difficulties the, uh, OU was having 
which we're not going to get into now, but that they settled it amicably and respectfully. And it might be the first time since Korach that, uh, you know, since before Korach that, you know, a couple of Jews figured out there was a middle ground they could work together. I don't know anything about it, so I can't okay. comment. Well, by the way, well, you were in California for Pesach. Right. How was the chicken? Oh, boy, we had something going on there. <laughs> Fortunately, uh, Ariella didn't buy any of her meat from Doheny, right. the c- uh, kosher butcher. But it's amazing. The place was sold two days after right. Yom Tif. But it was sold to somebody who is a well-known community activist, Baltzdaka, who clearly bought it just as a tzedakah. What, what, for whatever reason they bought right. it, they did a good thing. Right. And I think they were a bunch of rallied together and got right. Ruff Belsky on board and they serviced the community right. by buying, by buying it. And, uh, it's an unfortunate thing that happened, but not the hopefully first time, now, not the last time. I know. It's pretty sad. It's pretty sad. So let's uh, spend, um, the last few minutes we have since we spent most of the time. I don't think we've gotten out of the sixties yet really. Or maybe we got out of the sixties into the 2013s and we skipped everything in the middle. Um, so as I, and it's so interesting how I sort of discovered your entrepreneurial existence by um, quite literally, and I use that term literally, passing my boss's office and see at uh, at DMBNB and seeing you sitting in his office having a discussion. Um, that's when you used to be able to dress when you actually came to work and. Um, you know, you had the, 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 the whole suit and the matching hat and the whole, uh, the whole to do. But I remember, um, having discussion with you, you know, in the, in the, uh, reception area after your meeting with him. And, uh, you know, what are you doing here? You're like, it, it's sort of out of place when you see somebody from Shul show up at work. Um, and you were selling radio time, I think, at the, you know, at the time. And so you had such an interesting, entrepreneurial career that I just wanted to touch on that a little bit and certainly as it relates to I know that uh, you know one of my big fascinations is how you we sort of put it together and live in two worlds okay uh, well as far as DMBB was concerned I was uh, running that radio network in the health clubs you know the mm-hmm. the captive audience health club right. so the idea was you would pump in the radio station to the health club with music that was appropriate for working out, and you would sell commercial time, and that's how. And, and as we've discussed since, that idea was about ten years too early, because the technology hurdle was at that time before the internet just too much to bear, probably. Well, it was it was before its time, but the fact of the matter was was that it was successful on a local level. It was extremely successful, and we sold a lot of local advertising, mm-hmm. and we were able to do well. Okay. But when we tried to sell the national guys, the network wasn't big enough right. because the, the technology wasn't requisite to the need. Mm-hmm. And once the technology became requisite to the need, the need became right, unnecessary right. because right. everybody started watching their own television mm-hmm. at their own equipment or bringing their own equip, you know, their own earphones and music. So, but for the time we ran it, it was good, and we were partners with Bally's and. We made some money. And what are okay. some of the other things that you did uh, until we until the card in between the card business? We'll that talk we about were in a second. The best thing I did was write the book. I, I wrote that book. I took off a year to write a book uh, entitled entitled. Well, there are, there are two right books. the paperback and the hard, the hard part, right? right. The paperback is called uh, Not Just the Beatles, 
and the hardcover is called It's Sid Bernstein Calling. Right. So I read the paperback version you of that You read the book. paperback version, which is the one that I like better, which was self-published. But the, the hardcover version was published by a legitimate publishing company. Uh, and uh, uh, some people like it. Uh, better in the soft cover and some like it better well, in the I mean, I, don't, I generally like reading either hardcover books or books on my iPad but um, uh, uh, the storytelling of the book I, I was fascinated by his life story and well first of all and there the was no of, iPad <laughs> I know, iPad I know but I'm just saying now um, right, right. I, I'm fascinated I was fascinated by his life story and certainly the 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 way he managed to keep all the balls up in the air long enough to get the Beatles into Shea Stadium he had a fascinating life uh, I'm just writing a piece now about why he should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and we could spend another whole show on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think that that was the best thing I did from a career point of view, and you know, and the, all the stuff that I've done, you know, the the, the things I've been involved mm-hmm. in, um, I found that to be the most rewarding of all. And and it's it's really you know when somebody writes a book, I don't care what kind of book it is. It's forever. And, well, it's not only that. I, I, it's just the effort that it's, that's required, mm-hmm. the dedication that's required, the discipline that's required is, is uh, you know, it changes your life, uh, at least, you know, in my right. case. How many yellow pads and pens did you run through writing a book? A lot. <laughs> it's all written by hand. Right. Uh, you know. A proud Luddite. Right. <laughs> I, I, one of my wife's... Uh, uh, Pierce gave me pens, so mm-hmm. I I credited him in the book because I used all his pens, right. and then I used the pads white. They weren't yellow; oh, they were I've... white. But uh, I went through a lot. I have all the pages, handwritten pages. And then for a while, you were in the phone card business or the printing That's business, right. right? We were in the printing business and uh, tried to publish a magazine for a couple of years. We we did, Mark. We did. We tried. I think. Well, I think we got beaten there by the economy, I thought. Right. I, I, we, I think we were at a tipping point where we need either – and it comes back to the same thing. you got to be national to get the national advertisers. Mm-hmm. Um, the truth is, I, I mean, I, I, I as recently as this week, uh, twice with two different clients talked about Hispanic targeting ad, targeted advertising, um, you, you know, with issues revolving around trying to report – who, who's seen what? So those issues, you know, are still out there, you know, five and a half years after we were doing what we yeah. were doing. I had a girlfriend before I got married who said that I was a visionary. And that was, I think that, you know, I'm not saying that I'm a prophet, right. but I am. I usually tend to be way ahead of myself or ahead of when it happens. I still believe that that's going to happen. Maybe not on phone cards, but some kind of delivery system like that, uh, because it, it just makes too much sense. Um, right. So I think that, that that does happen today on uh, on smartphones, which you probably don't have, um, and uh, that they are delivering messages targeted to specific people who know they're targeting to give them offers. And but it's gotten much more sophisticated because now they know where you are and they're able to deliver a message or a coupon or something. On the phone. B- on the phone based on your location. I mean, that's sort of the next the next piece of this. Well, that's why we had you, because we knew we would have anticipated right. that if we Right, and we talked to, to electronic delivery and stuff, right. and we even um, 
met with some people who were already trying to do that, or, you know, even from a text message perspective. But that, that, that whole area is really, Exploded, and we don't know the phone card business itself is probably on its on its downward trend. But it is uh, a little bit on the downward. You're right, trend, probably a whole other. Uh, but a lot of that depends on the economy. If you have an influx of aliens, illegal aliens here, again, you, well, the they'll, soon they'll all be legal. Don't you watch the news? Well, yeah, maybe they'll be legal. <laughs> but you know, I owe the fact that I use an iPad, and I really have to thank you to you. So um, you helped me. You get still haven't put your finger through it. Um, no, almost. Right. That was <laughs> well, uh, Avram and I went back and forth. Uh, you know, how long is it going to take before he puts his finger right through the whole oh, thing? Right, right. Sometimes I don't bang right. it on the on, on the thing there, but um, it's a great, great thing, and I find that it's easy to write because it spell checks. Right, and, and and not only does Among it spell check, it corrects, and it keeps a record of what you did, and you don't have to look too far. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why. I mean, I don't have I have no paper in my office at work anymore. Is that right? Yeah, I'm all. Uh, yeah, I have no paper. Nothing. Well, how about if somebody calls you up and says, "Call me back at a number." No, no. So I might write the number down, but at, right. the, but at the end of the day, all the post-it notes get put into the iPad. Wow. Into the computer. Wow. Yeah. And are you using the computer on your desk, or are you yes. using on your desk? And the computer on my desk links and syncs to my iPad. So when I'm in a meeting, I'm taking notes on my iPad, and it'll get back to the computer on its own. How does it do that? I don't know. <laughs> you don't know. I have an application. I installed it. It syncs, and you hit the button. I am going to a MB. I have been invited to a an event uh, of financial advisors. They're holding an event at the Apple Store in Grand Central Station. They close the store mm-hmm. down for us. They will feed us. I hope they have some kosher mm-hmm. food, but they will spend two hours giving us tips on things that we don't know about on our iPads. And it's interesting because we were, I was in, um, you know, it was a little easier when we were working together because you just asked me to do it and I took care of it. And I, cause I, for whatever reason, I have sort of a sense for some of these things. Um, I was watching, we were, I was in an airport in Columbus, uh, last month and there were two, I don't want to say old, but certainly more senior, Lawyers, I know they were lawyers because I was listening to their conversation because um, they were at the next table talking on their cell phones pretty loudly, uh, who were trying to get access to their work network, which was, you know, in secure lockdown, and they're both on, on the phone to their IT people, and they were clearly clueless about what they were asking. You know, they're just at the mercy of some, you know, 23-year-old kid who has no patience for them back in the office. So I understand that there is, um, there, you know, some people do struggle with you know, but you can get away without it, I guess. If you, uh, it's still you know. a fantastic. Uh, right? Do you do uh, Skype with your grandchildren? FaceTime. FaceTime, same thing. Yes. Right? Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. It is. It is amazing. It's amazing. Um, Israel was, in Israel. I was going to say, when was the last time you were there in Israel? Uh, about uh, three weeks before Pesach. Oh, so you went from Israel back to California. From Israel to Rome to California. Oh, that's very nice. I actually went to Rome to apply for the job, but. They gave it uh, to Francis. White yeah, smoke right. already, and you were done. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, they've had Jewish popes before, I'm sure. Of course they have. I would set them straight, too, yeah, if exactly. they gave me the job. No, no <laughs> doubt about that. Right, right. So anyway, we're wrapping up uh, with Arthur Aaron here, who's been our guest. for. I, I had no doubt that we can fill up uh, a full hour, uh, a, a full hour discussion, and I do now. Um, you know, I, I have I have a comment. I have conversations with 
other hosts on the Nachum Siegel Network to give them pointers as they listen to the shows or whatever, knowing that I'm generally no better than they are. And one of the things I always say is you just have to every 10 minutes remind everybody where they are, who's on the air, what they're listening to, and I completely blew that away. So so what do you do now? Edit it in? No. We're, we're honest here. I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to cover for my own errors. Hopefully, Why? it's not an error. It's just, uh, it, it is what it is. In the, in the heat of the, of the game. We just got so engrossed in our conversation. Hopefully, hopefully everybody else will listen to it as well. Leora jokes with me sometimes. We should, she and I, um, should record our conversations on the way home from school, um, and play them on the air. But I think that some of those conversations we had in the car, um, you know, driving from Houston to San Antonio, where I just was last week, by the way, and uh, very, uh, very worthwhile, and, and hopefully some of it came out today. We should describe that cloud we saw. That was amazing. It just amazing. amazing cloud. Yeah. I thought it kind of looked like a uh, uh, an exclamation mark. A huge exclamation mark. Right. It, it, it right. Well, you, right, and you saw it raining on one side, right, raining right, on the other right. side. It was really... We were, we, we were going from Houston to Dallas? To, to San Antonio. Dallas? Houston to San Antonio. San Antonio. How many hours did it take? Well, probably two and a half, three hours. It wasn't, a, uh, that's why we did it that way. It wasn't such a long right. ride. Um, but the, I was in the, well, San Antonio has a Continental Club or United Club now. I don't think they did then. Houston certainly does. I actually had a very, I, I almost didn't make the connection. So I was lucky to make it, uh, um, home when I did. Anyway. I give you permission to insert what you need should have no, it's inserted. not needed to insert we'll you know how i know that you're right about that though because when i listen to mike uh, you know mike francesa yeah he always says every few minutes I'm right well there's to, the old thing that people joke you know that they every 10 minutes you have to the weather and the time and the weather and the time now i don't have to worry about the time because the show is airing at multiple times and most people probably listen to it on an archive so the time is not necessarily what does that relevant mean on an archive meaning that that as of the after the week after the show airs it'll be posted on the internet and you can listen to it whenever you want so, um, so, so there are going to be people sitting there saying, who, who, who is this guy? So they'll have to listen to the whole show, exactly. <laughs> and the truth is, in this case, at least the name will be on the file. So while they're listening to the show, the name will be on the screen, whether it's on the phone or not. Anyway, um, I'll learn from my mistakes and hopefully get better. Do you have, um, uh, you know, maybe a final memory, uh, that you want to share or, uh, a final message you want to share? And we talked about a, a very wide range. Of topics today, including um, you know what it was like to grow up in the fifties and the sixties, and the, you know what it was like to play basketball. What it, uh, we really didn't even get into your coaching of basketball, which I'm sure many people know, know you for. Um, but a very, you know, uh, full, exciting, um, you know, story of uh, life in America and the Jewish community for the over the past seventy years. What do you have? Uh, what do you want to leave the listeners with? Move to Israel. <laughs> Move to Israel. Right after you, uh, I know you're a big, uh, even get, get into that, all things we didn't get into. Your relationship with Rabbi Riskin and, uh, from back in the and day. And read Sherwood Rabbi Gunther. Riskin's book, Rabbi Riskin. Have you read Rabbi I Riskin's book? I absolutely read it. Wasn't Rabbi it Riskin's great? It was a very good book. Great book. But it, his quote at the beginning is, uh, not every true story happened and not every story that happened is true. So everything you have to take with a grain of salt. No, I, uh, he, he told the truth. He tells the truth. I don't, I'm surprised he said that. Did you, le- did you read the Rakefet book? Because they both came out at the same time. No, I didn't. You should read it. I'll give it to you. Okay. It's fabulous. I think you would li- like that. It, it, very, very different style 
but but there's so there's a lot of crossover stories and certainly they're they they're both of similar ages I'd love to read and it. similar backgrounds. So excellent, excellent I'd book. I recommend them both. Anyway, Arthur Aaron, thank you for joining us on the stunt show. It has been a pleasure. My and, pleasure. Uh, My pleasure. Thank and, you, Mark. And uh, hopefully the listeners enjoyed it as well. So they'll have to judge whether it's uh Radio Gold or cra- Crash and Burn. But after after the interview, I'm happy to say, for me, it was Radio Gold. Thank you for joining me. We're going to conclude with what he says is his favorite song on an album he produced. This is Hua Locano by Sherwood Goffin. This is Mark Zamek on The Stunt Show. This is the Nachum Siegel Network. This is JM and the AM.org. Oh,